Hello and welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Before we start, let me remind you about the Integrative Biology and Medicine Conference. Among other speakers, you'll hear from Svetlana Kurina, University of Manchester, about the role of microRNAs in wound healing. You will also hear from Barty Kolchinsky, University of Warsaw, about integrating gene expression data with chromatin structure data for better models of gene regulation. The conference will be in early October in Kiev, Ukraine. I'm here with Valentine Svensson. Valentine wrote a tool called Spatial DE and the paper Spatial DE Identification of Spatially Variable Genes. Hi, Valentine. Hi. So we will talk about your tool, but before that, tell us about yourself, about your background, education, prior experience, etc. Um, well, I, I did an undergrad in, in uh, pure maths in Lund in Sweden. And then I worked for a couple of years at a genomics facility in Stockholm that, that made me interested in biology. So I applied for a PhD position at uh, EMBO, um, and uh, I went there and I joined Sarah Teichmann while she was at the, the MLEBI, European Bioinformatics Institute. And I've been doing a PhD with her for the last four years, and I actually defended my PhD about a month ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So now your PhD is finished, and uh, what, what's your sort of current employment? Or uh, Well, I have some funding to stay here for a few months more, but then I'm going to go to Caltech in California for a postdoc. Oh, pretty cool. So you already got accepted there? Yes. Mm-hmm. And Spatial D, was that part of your PhD? How how does it fit into your general research? Yeah, uh, it fits in. So uh, my research for my PhD has been about cell differentiation and how to study that using single cell RNA sequencing. And we, we have been doing this by essentially using a kind of analysis, which is quite common in the single cell field called pseudotime analysis, where you take a snapshot of data and you kind of order this, uh, all of the cells in this snapshot to form a kind of temporal trajectory or pseudotemporal trajectory based on the gene expression values. What we wanted to see is, um, what kind, like, what genes do something interesting over time. And we found that using Gaussian process regression was a very good way of finding genes which had some kind of smooth and interesting behavior over time, but we didn't have to specify what kind of patterns they should be. Um, and if we fast forward a bit, um, a year ago, I think there was this paper published in Science uh, where they had done not single cell RNA sequencing, but RNA sequencing, which was spatially resolved. And this was a technology we thought was really interesting because it could complement our single cell studies that allow us to investigate gene expression in a tissue context for, for example, immune cells and how they are located within uh, different tissues. And we were wondering, how would we analyze this kind of data? Uh, we, we did also do our own experiment as a pilot for this, which we haven't published yet, but it's something we were working on. And we wanted to, in general, just find, okay, we have these 20,000 genes which are expressed throughout the data. Which ones should we start looking at? Which they didn't know up before, which are doing anything interesting over space. And we figured that we could actually apply the same concepts that we did for our time course analysis before. Uh, so we can find these genes where, where like the variation in gene expression 
is dependent on the spatial coordinates. Uh, so we made this uh, method and tool which um, can identify genes which are doing something which is correlated with the tissue structure or the spatial coordinates in the, t- in the tissue. So you mentioned pseudotime. Uh, do I understand correctly that pseudotime has nothing to do with like actual time? So that you're not talking about the actual time series data? Could you explain a bit more how that works? Sure. So that depends a bit on the experiment. Uh, we have done it in a couple of different ways, but um, I, I published a paper in Cell Report a couple of years ago uh, where we investigated blood development in zebrafish. So we, uh, zebrafish is actually a really good model for blood development because all blood develops in one concentrated region in the, in the kidney, as opposed to in mammals where it's developed in the bone marrow. So you can actually sample all the blood progenitors in a, in a fish in a pretty efficient way. And what we did there is we took a single fish and we sorted out cells that we knew came from one blood lineage, uh, the thrombocyte lineage, which is the equivalent of platelets. So this is just one time point, one fish. Um, and using this kind of pseudo time analysis, uh, we could actually reconstruct the, um, the development from, from progenitors to mature thrombocytes. And we could then analyze gene expressions over this development. And we found, uh, uh, yeah, we, we found that translation genes kind of go down before transcription genes and things like this. Mm-hmm. So for pseudo time analysis, did you also use Gaussian processes? Yeah, so that's what we found uh, was um, it, we found it to be pretty good when you don't have any prior information about what kind of curves you're, expect, you're expecting over time. Um, and we used something, well, first, in the beginning, we were just using Gaussian processes for analysis once we had the pseudo time to kind of see which genes are doing something interesting over time. But we also found that there's this really good model called the Gaussian process latent variable model. Uh, which just assumes that all of your genes follow to some extent some of these Gaussian processes. And then you can actually learn the time values using this. And yeah, it's something that's worked really well for us so far. Returning to the spatial uh, variation, how do you actually obtain the spatially resolved data? How, how does that work? Uh, so there are different techniques for this. Um, in the paper, we highlighted three techniques for doing this. Uh, one is genome-wide, and the other two require you, you to design probes for a set of target genes. So for the genome-wide technology called spatial transcriptomics, and this is the one that was published in Science last year, what you do is that you, you freeze your tissue, and you slice it up with a microtome, and then you treat the, the slice in a particular way, and you put it on top of a kind of inverted microarray. So it's a microarray where... Uh, the probes that would normally attach to target genes have uh, poly-T uh, DNA on them. And then on the other side of the probe that's connecting to the actual array, there's barcodes which are spatially resolved. So you know which DNA barcode corresponds to which coordinate on the array. And then you let this tissue permeabilize on top of this array, and RNA from the tissue will just float down to the array and attached to the, these coordinates. And then you kind of treat it as a, almost like a single cell RNA-seq protocol, but uh, with more material because the, uh, the spatial coordinates on the array are on the level of between 10 and 100 cells rather than one cell. 
for the other technologies, they're more imaging based. So uh, they're based on single molecule fluorescent in situ hybridization. Uh, so you have to design a set uh, number of probes for genes, and then you can image them. And the, the technologies which are more interesting for this kind of test that we're doing to find interesting genes, uh, this would be technologies where you can do many probes. And there are a couple of uh, techniques, one called Seekfish and another called Murfish. Uh, they're conceptually similar. I think Murfish has some error correction and Seekfish does things a bit differently. But in the end, you make like a probes which have multiple, well, you can, you basically do multiple rounds of hybridizations of, uh, of uh, things which create different colors. And this way you can kind of design a coding scheme from that to which probe different uh, uh, DNA came from. And that way you can kind of using a bunch of images, deconvolve this into which genes were spotted in the images or which RNAs or other. Uh, th these have been scaled up so Sickfish can do or could do in the paper they published, 250 genes. And there's a paper for Murfish where they did about a thousand genes. Um, I'm hoping this will scale up in the future because it's a, it's a really high throughput technology. So in, in one of the Murfish papers, they did one experiment where they could analyze this like single cell expression level of a hundred or so genes for over, over 35, over 35,000 cells uh, in, in a tissue. So what is the typical spatial uh, scale of, of this data? Are we talking like on a cell size scale or is it like one centimeter, 10 centimeters? Yeah, that depends a bit on the technology. Uh, the spatial transcriptomics is less resolution. So as I said before, so the way that uh, kind of array is designed, it's, I think it's about two millimeters times two millimeters. Oh, maybe I should bring up the, the technical specs so I, so I don't say something wrong. And there you have like this uh, kind of regions on the array, which are circular, having a, a diameter of a hundred microns with a hundred micron space between them. So that's kind of the resolution. With the array, the size of your sample of your tissue has to be has to correspond to the size of the microarray itself, right? It has has to be on the same scale. Yeah, you you kind of want to want to do something which is on that scale. It's going to be the best way. There, they did do a cool paper uh, applying that to plants. Um, I think it's in Nature Plants. They they used it in different plants, but the the plant regions that they used were kind of small, so they only got like five or six spatial coordinates, which in the end uh, you couldn't apply my method to because it's too it's kind of too little data. Uh, but I thought it was really cool anyway, and you get these really cool pictures of, you know, buds from different plants and gene expression in them. On the other hand, the in-situ hybridization methods, those are actually subcellular. And we were thinking about, like, whether we could also do something with that to see, like, whether some RNAs are localized at the sides of cells or something like this. But that's more of a different kind of analysis than we did here. But I think it's pretty interesting, like, what you can do with the subcellular resolution of data. Mm -hmm. But what about the upper bound of, of this? Like if you wanted to investigate some spatial patterns on the scale of like the whole organ, like like liver, would that work? Yeah, there's a limit to that as well, uh, how large the images can be. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. But in the latest Murfish paper, they, they did make a point of making a very, very big image that um, by kind of joining together multiple images that were imaged after each other. But the, the areas are much smaller than the area for the spatial transcriptomics. 
So use the data between uh, different experiments com comparable as well. So you can like uh, make multiple snapshots, but then like how how large would you expect the batch effects to be? Uh, it depends on what kind of what thing you want to do. So so if, with the in situ hybridization things, of course you have like a limited number of genes that you that you look at. It could be the case that if you looked at the same genes as uh, investigated by spatial transcriptomics, you might see something um, interesting there as well. Though the structures that you would see in the in the spatial transcriptomics data would be more macro, while the structures in the other data is, is more on the smaller scale. So, so in the paper we looked at one Seekfish dataset and a couple of spatial transcriptomics datasets, but one of the ST datasets that we looked at was um, uh, from from mouse brain uh, from the olfactory bulb, while the only available Seekfish data is also from mouse brain, but the hippocampus. We did see some genes being common between these, and it's probably some genes which are well, not very, not extremely functionally re relevant for the tissues that were studied, but were common for just being in, in neurons or something like this. So that kind of suggests that maybe they could be combined in some way to, to work something out with the neurons. Um, an issue, of course, here is that, yeah, this is if you just want to compare the samples and the individual, you know, locations in, in these, uh, different, uh, technologies and just combine them on a gene expression level. But of course, I don't think there's a reasonable way to combine the spatial coordinates because like they're on different coordinate systems. Mm -hmm. uh, so like you expect it to be a problem to like fix the origin of every uh, coordinate system of every experiment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or how do you align a small piece of one tissue that's from one mouse and a other small piece from another tissue, which is from a different mouse mm -hmm. from a different continent. While oh, yeah, the cells themselves might be comparable because one is one kind of neuron and the other is another kind of neuron. And you can compare how these different kinds of neurons are in the different experiments. But the spatial coordinates themselves probably will depend on, well, what kind of mouse did you use and this the mouse itself. Right, right. I, I, I mean, of course, I know that this kind of image registration is something that's common in like medical imaging, but I'm not sure like how that applies to uh, in situ hybridization. What kind of file format do you use to represent the spatial information? So I guess uh, your reads are barcoded and then you have like a table that gives uh, coordinates for every barcode. Is that it? Uh, yes, that's um, at least uh, that was the data we got from from the people at Spatial Transcriptomics. So we performed. At, so I've used uh, when I've used the public data. The actually together with the paper, there's a website which has pre-processed data, which is really handy actually. And I wish more papers did this. Uh, so there, I could just get a table where the row names are the spatial coordinates and the column names are the different genes and then in the matrix is used the gene expressions. So that, that's quite handy. Uh, when we got uh, our own data uh, back from, uh, from them, yeah, we got basically reads and then a table uh, that's uh, translated a cord, uh, um, a barcode into coordinates. And then we have to kind of join that together 
it it wasn't a lot of work actually, but yeah, that that's the data format. Mm-hmm. And what so what kind of data does Spatial D expect? Uh, does it support like some one fixed format or multiple formats? Um, yeah, so Spatial D expects uh, two tables basically. Uh, one table which is uh, which has names of samples in the rows and names of genes in the columns, and then it's just a gene expression matrix in general. And the other table it expects is a table which has the sample names in the rows, again, uh, but then also some kind of spatial coordinates in the uh, in the columns. And you can specify this, the, the names of these columns for whatever you want. Um, yeah, so actually I, I, I tried it on some other data where the the coordinates were like names of people and it's also something that works but you have to change what you use for the covariance function (laughs) okay so spatial d supports any number of dimensions right and i think you even mentioned in the papers that you can treat uh the time as one of the dimensions Uh, yeah and as i mentioned in the beginning about the origins for this was that was uh, how we have analyzed a lot of data before um, is to use exactly the same model, but over time. Uh, then we used a package to do this called GPy. And we wanted to kind of accomplish a couple of things here. So first of all, we wanted to make it very specialized for these kind of spatial studies. But we also wanted it to be very, very fast. So when I've been using GPy for the other time series data before, it takes something like 100 CPU hours to do a genome-wide search, while it takes eight minutes for, for this package. And something which I've been doing when I've been teaching about how to do time series analysis is uh, looking at the data set, which I've also included in the paper, which is a, it's a really cool data set, uh, um, which we didn't make, but uh, it's a time course of frog development, like embryonic development of frogs. And they did, um, they picked um, basically embryos at very, very close intervals. So it's a very high resolution time course. So it's really good to test these kind of models to find like temporal, temporal variation. And yeah, when, when I run that on a cluster, it's taken about a hundred CPU hours, but here I'm reanalyzing the data in the paper, uh, getting similar results, but much much faster. But then it's kind of like saying that, uh, time is like a one dimensional space. And in theory, you could kind of combine these things to have like a two dimensional space, but also have a time course. Not sure, like how you would assay this, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was thinking about, right? So that that's not currently supported. It's definitely supported. So you can put in any number of dimensions as you want. Uh, I just don't think there exists any data for this. Oh, but I was thinking that depending on the nature of each dimension, you probably should treat it differently. So, for example, if you have three spatial dimensions, they are. Uh, more or less, like not equivalent, but you know, uh, interchangeable. But but the time is very, like a very different kind of dimension. Yeah, it's true actually. Because um, okay, that's a good point. Because the way we do it now, we're calculating pairwise distances between points, and of course, in two D space or in three D space, uh, pairwise distances make sense because the distance unit is the same in x coordinate and y coordinate and z coordinate. But if you have a time, yeah, if, if you measure time in seconds, it's going to be different from if you measure distance in centimeters. Uh, so it's a good point to think about how we how we should deal with that. 
to make some kind of like smoothing or basically, I mean, the, the way you would do this in a more general package is that you would, uh, um, well, so, so the way the model works is you calculate kind of distances between things. And then you're saying, I think things which are close in this distance covary. Uh, and that way you can kind of make predictions and inferences. Um, but, um, you can also say that, so the way, and the way I've done it here is that I assume that things will covary at the same scale and the X coordinate as the Y coordinate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also change that and say that actually I, I want things to, I want to allow things to covary at different rates in different dimensions. And sometimes this makes sense even for spatial things. So, um, I'm trying to think of a good physical example, but. Say that you're at a beach, for example, and you're seeing waves coming in towards the shore from, from the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will see more variation or you will see like more interesting patterns. I think at least that's how it looks in my head of, you know, waves being varying in a, in a way that's uh, kind of, uh, parallel to the actual beach as right. opposed to varying in a orthogonal way to the beach. So then you would want to say that actually, I think the length scale of covariance is shorter in the Y coordinate than it is in the X coordinate. And similarly, if, if one was time and one was a special coordinate, you can say, well, I measured space in centimeters and I measured time in seconds. So the units in my table I have here are not really comparable. And therefore the, the length scale for seconds should be separated from the length scales in in centimeters right and i imagine there are plenty of reasons for even the like pure spatial data to be also um like for it to vary differently in different uh directions because although yeah. like in in theory our physical world is i think isotropic is the the correct term for that but uh still we have for example, lateral symmetry, right? So like left, right will have um, maybe different meaning than uh, forward versus back. And then there's, of course, gravity. So like up, down will have some separate meaning from that. Yeah, yeah. And we did, uh, so I, I did uh, do a couple of experiments of like trying the different things to see like what we would should support in the tool. And we find, found that Looking at tissues, the kind of things that most people are interested in will be the ones which are varying in the same way in either direction. And that will also cover cases when only one dimension varies, but it will get a different p-value in the end than if you allow, say that you say that, oh, there's absolutely no covariating um, uh, expression values in the X coordinates. Everything is in the Y coordinate, which happens, of course, in some tissues. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even uh, one of the samples in uh, in the paper is this this brain tissue I mentioned before. And if you allow uh, the covariance to be separated, it does find it has an easier time finding genes which are determining the kind of left right uh, symmetry between the, the lobes. But uh, um, we yeah we we kind of thought oh but it's more general uh, being in the in the different directions actually uh, covers most of the cases and and the slight improvement in the significance tests are not really worth it for the the extra hassle of dealing with multiple length scales 
Right, right. But for but when when we have time courses, which might then be coming in the future, we have to rethink that because, as you say, the units will be different. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking that even like for purely spatial data, if if you go a bit further, like not just allow different measurements in different directions, but also I'm wondering uh, if you could build into the tool some kind of uh, PCA analysis so that it would figure out the correct directions by itself so you wouldn't rely on like the correct alignment of your um whatever it's called right <laughs> of, of your essay uh to the axis of to the correct axis but you would figure out the axis automatically i guess it would you could do that separately from the gaussian uh process right just do like a normal pca on your data yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm not sure if I completely follow, but I, I can give, um, I can relate it to something that sounds like it's relevant to what, what okay. you're saying. So there's um, a couple of papers from a few years ago, both I think in Nature Biotechnology, one from John Marioni's group and one from Rahul Satia. Uh, and what they did is that they did single cell RNA sequencing of cells without knowing the spatial coordinates. But they had a reference with like a few genes where they knew in an, in an organism where those genes like usually were. So they could use this reference with uh, 10 or so genes to map their single cells into likely spatial coordinates. Uh, and in such, in such a way, like, uh, yeah, taking these non-spatial samples and, mm-hmm. uh, and make spatial coordinates for them based on uh, data from some some markers and i think that's kind of what you mean so similarly to how people do uh, pseudo time you could think of like pseudo space uh yeah i i see what you mean and it's uh it's interesting but i guess this method ha- like it wouldn't have a great resolution like a great precision no so so what we're what we're taking um what we're taking advantage of here is that we know this extra information and i should say like uh Getting, getting this extra spatial information is very expensive compared to not getting it. Like you have to deal with your samples in a very particular way and it, it, it's quite costly as well to, to do it. So we want to make sure to use that information once we get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the, like the precision of this information, right? How like you're saying that we can map in a precise way where the particular genes are expressed. Um, okay. Do you mean in the data we have, or the thing I explained about the re- backmapping? Yeah, the the thing you just described. Oh, so the backmapping thing. Yeah, I, I don't think there's been a comparison with between having the actual coordinates. They did have interesting results um, in, in the papers they they published, uh, but I think yeah, you you gain some like a lot of confidence by actually looking at the at the location. So you alluded a bit to how Gaussian processes work, but uh, do you want to get into like a bit more detail? What What is this model? Yeah, sure. So the rough idea of it actually comes from, I think about a hundred years ago or so in uh, South Africa, where there were gold miners who tried to figure out like what's the best location to mine for gold next. And imagine that you're doing this thing where you kind of, dug a mine somewhere and then you and then you found a bit of gold and then you dug a mine somewhere else and you didn't find any gold but then kind of a bit from both of those places you 
dug a third mine, and there you found more gold again. So then you want to know, okay, where should I build, dig my next mine where it's the most likely that I will find gold? Uh, and the data you have, well, so you have this underlying assumption, is, which is that like, things are in these veins underground. So you think that uh, things should be like close to where you found gold before, you will find more gold. And the closer you are to a place where you already found gold, the more certain you are that you will find gold again. Um, so you're basically saying that around an area where I found gold, uh, I should find more gold. And around an area where I did not find gold before, I will not find gold. And then as you go between these things, you get more certain the, uh, as you're moving towards the mine that held gold from the mine that did not have gold. Uh, and you can phrase this as a covariance, which depends on the coordinates of these mines. And this way you can say, okay, if I'm digging in between the two mines that had gold, I am expecting, I have a higher expectation of finding gold there. Uh, and then uh, how quickly you think these like expectations decrease is something that uh, you can estimate if you have a lot of data, much more than th three points. Um, and that's, that's kind of the basis of it. So you're just saying that I don't really know how the gold vein looks like, but I expect uh, it to have a higher density close to the places where I knew I, I could find gold. Uh, so the way we parameterize this is that we write a function saying how uh, these measurements of, for example, gold or gene expression are covarying with other coordinates and depending on other coordinates rather than what is the actual values at these coordinates. Uh, so then you can be data-driven. So you you won't know anything if you don't have any data. You, you will just like say, oh, well, if things are close to each other, then they should have the same, but I don't know what is there. But if you then also supply some data, it will inform you about where it is certain that things will have high values and where it is certain things will have low values. So it's a, it's a model of the covariance structure. And together with the covariance structure and data, you can uh, predict with uncertainty how things will look where you did not uh, actually sample data. Right. And, and just to, to connect your explanation, your golden explanation to the paper. Um, so I think the covariance structure, uh, corresponds to, to kernels, right? Yes. And, and so the, the kernel you just described, it sort of just measures how, um, I'm wondering if, if you could say that this sort of measures the continuity of this function, right? So how, how like continuous and smooth it is, because it's pretty much yes. the definition of the continuous function that if you, if I vary your coordinates, uh, a little bit, then the outcome won't, uh, vary drastically. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, so what you have is an expression for like how, a like in an abstract sense, a function look. And when I've been teaching this before, I've, that I exercise where I ask everyone in my class to kind of, okay, everyone draw a function and then you collect the papers and then you see, okay, so if I just tell you to draw a function and I don't tell you what it should look like, most of you draw things which are like squiggly lines, which are continuous and smooth and all of these things, um, which 
is what this covariance structure as you covariance structure as you as you said uh, corresponds to, which is the these kind of smooth curves. That is a bit of a criticism of this model is that it does assume very very smooth curves, and there's some there's some modifications you can do to it to allow for less smooth curves. But uh, uh, well, my view is that in biology the data is at a noise level where we will only see these smooth things anyway. Mm-hmm. In physics, it's a bit different. Yeah, so that's one criticism. As as you said, you assume that everything is smooth, but I, I was thinking about almost the opposite criticism, that this is like too soft a definition. Because when I think about spatial variability, just knowing that it sort of continues, like I wouldn't call this a uh, spatially variable gene expression, right? So uh, w- when I hear the expression special variable gene expression, I'm thinking more along the lines of if you go further left or further right or further up, uh, then it will vary in some almost predictable pattern. There there will be some pattern. And uh, I I believe uh, we can achieve that definition just by choosing the uh, a different kernel, right? Um, I'm not sure if I understand. Are you saying that you're expecting the variance to be spatially dependent as opposed no, no, to the expression uh, level. No, I'm 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 saying that, uh, f- for example, if I had a uh, gene whose expression varies very smoothly, right, mm-hmm. then it seems like your method, at least using this uh, standard uh, distance kernel, distance-based kernel, it would detect it as spatially variable, right? Yes. W- whereas like intuitively, okay. I, I wouldn't call a special variable because it's still variable in unpredictable ways, right? It's just uh, smoothly or continuously variable. Wait, uh, so I don't see... I think this the thing you're describing to me, at least as I'm understanding it, it sounds quite predictably, credi- predictable as opposed to unpredictable. Well, it, it is predictable once you have the data, right? But mm, what, yeah. what I would call predictable is that, for example, if I have the data for the uh, point X, and I could say, okay, if I move uh, like to the left of, of point X, then I will see like higher gene expression for this gene, right? But uh, in your model, all you can say is if, if I go to the left of point x i will see a similar gene expression but you cannot say like whether it will go up or down uh no no that that's actually not correct uh, you you could uh, you can extrapolate from this i uh, like uh, from gaussian process models just as you could from other models uh, and actually a, a big benefit with gaussian process models uh, for the sake of for example you know forecasting and these things is that uh, when you do get predictions, they, it also gives you the uncertainty of the predictions. So you can put a cutoff for how far in the future or how far left you want to predict, uh, uh, given that you accept a certain level of uncertainty in the predictions. Yeah, that, that's that's a very good point, by the way. And I, I wanted to ask you, because your tool, I think, doesn't actually make use of this kind of uncertainty, right? Uh, I, I think you, you only use the point estimates. Well, we, we don't do any prediction, uh, I guess is the thing. So mm-hmm. we only estimate the variance components, which is why we're calling it spatially variable. So there is the, the larger variance component, which is just the, the variance of the data as a whole. 
And then we are decomposing it into two sources. One is just uh, independent variance, and the other source is variance which can be explained by the spatial coordinates. And and that, that's kind of what we're arguing is the spatial variation, something where the variance can be explained by spatial dependence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, in, well, if I would use this for making a nice, like, smoother plot, for example, where I do interpolation between the points, I can take my covariance uh, matrix and the data and then also add new data for the uh, points in between the observed points. And uh, to get, like, these three things together can make predictions of the values between the points where I didn't have any observations. Uh, so, so that's something that you could do, but we are, we're not so interested in that for for this study in particular because uh, there's enough data to just plot the data mm-hmm. um, as it is though it is a sensible thing to do a lot of times anyway because uh, if you want to evaluate these models and like how good they fit the data a good way of evaluating them is by doing prediction and see how good the predictions look compared to the real data uh, but we haven't done this because we we focus the tool to identify the genes um, right. And I, I would suggest if you want to do more of the actual predictions, uh, should probably look into GPI or a new package called uh, GPFlow, which you can do more of this kind of low level work with Gaussian processes. So could you uh, talk about like other kernels and uh, what they uh, sort of represent, what, what they're useful for? Yeah. So the thing I described before, where just like if you have a point and then you let the covariance decrease as a function of distance to that point. Uh, we usually write that out as an exponential with a square distance in it. Uh, and that's usually called the Gaussian kernel or the squared exponential kernel. And it's the probably the most common kernel there is. And it, it kind of makes functions which are infinitely differentiable and really smooth looking. Uh, and it's kind of a general kernel. Almost everything can be represented by this kernel. Uh, but you can in- enforce some stronger constraints. So something we're doing just to kind of like classify genes is that you can define a kernel that's periodic. And if you have a periodic kernel, you do say that the covariance decreases as a distance from your point, but then it starts increasing again. Because you know, for example, uh, if you have a sine curve, you know that uh, two pi away from any point, you should have the same value. Uh, so then you will have a period of 2 pi, and you know that no matter like where the curve starts, it should be, you should get the same values a certain distance away. Uh, and this kind of allows you to find things which are, have like periodic structures in, uh, in tissues, for example. So this, this would be like then a, a surface that's periodic as opposed to a curve, but, but that's the idea that if you you can find a period so that if expression value is high in one coordinate, then a certain distance away, it will be high again. And then further the same distance away, it will be high again. Uh, and uh, this is a stronger assumption than the Gaussian kernel. But this stronger assumption means that when genes fit this assumption, uh, it's going to get a better model selection value and you can find genes which fit this better than the general model right so so i think this is what i was alluding uh before that i think this kernel if gene expression follows this model with with a 
periodic kernel or maybe a linear kernel, like those actually expose some interesting patterns in in gene expression, right? You can you can say yeah. something meaningful about yeah, the spatial yeah. distribution. I think the difference is that with the Gaussian kernel, if the two points are far away, there is no connection. Whereas uh, with the linear or periodic kernels, if the two points are far away, but they're related in some way, then there is still connection between them. Yeah. And there is, so there's actually a kind of balance here. And it's uh, something which is sometimes frustrating, which is that uh, sometimes you want to see things which are generally interesting. Uh, so you don't want to make assumptions on how things look. And then the, this Gaussian kernel is really good. So you can find things which are used, like you can explain the data in terms of this, uh, for example, in time, you can find, you can predict given the time and the, your observation data, like any other data with it. And it makes really smooth curves in these things. But uh, in many cases, this doesn't help you so much because now you only know that this gene is here, but there are a lot of follow-up questions like, well, when does it start expressing or for how long is it expressing or like how far away is it expressing from another cell or something like this. Uh, and that's kind of, um, it's both a strength. It's definitely a strength if you don't, if you're not sure what you're looking for, which is this non-parametric models, which, which this is, it's a non-parametric surface basically. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, if you want to know, like, which genes go up as I go laterally across an organism, for example, the, then just finding genes which are covarying with the locations in the organism is not going to answer that question. And then it's better to move to a parametric model uh, where you can see these kind of things. And uh, the periodic kernel and the linear kernel are more parametric in this, sense. in particular the linear kernel, because... It, it is that is equivalent to linear regression in, in some sense, but it does it by variance decomposition. Right. Uh, and that usually can tell you things like, oh, uh, as you move across the surface of the tissue, then uh, as you move northwest of something, then the values goes up, which is sometimes interesting. Um, and it is a bit more interpretable, but you have to kind of look at this balance and and see like okay do i want to find anything that's doing something interesting because that that might give me information about some particular period of time or some particular region of the tissue where a given gene is like very concentrated or do i want to like actually find uh, a curve that that fits or like a, a, a very particular surface that, that fits the the tissue expression got it and so your tool, Spatial D, does it uh, tell? So it tells you which genes are specially uh, variable, but does it also tell you for every gene, uh, sort of what kernel best fits the gene and with what parameters? Yes, it does. So um, it has kind of two key functions. One is a significance test, and this significance test only uses the very general spatial Gaussian kernel. Uh, and that's kind of because that is the one that, that, that allows us to find the more general patterns. Uh, and as I said before, like you, like, so if you have something like a sine curve, you can fit it both with a periodic kernel and with a general kernel. Right. Um, and to keep things kind of comparable to make the significance test, uh, 
uh, valid. We do the significance test only using the, the general kernel. But then the, the genes which are above a significance threshold, we also then uh, fit several other kernels to, uh, to do kind of a model selection uh, run to see, uh, like, to, to kind of like break apart or to, to, t- to kind of move from this general kernel and see, okay, can we like fit something more parametric to this general patterns and see if we can see something there. So at least for now, what we can do is that we can find periodic patterns and strictly increasing patterns using the linear kernel. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of wondering if it's possible to like find other kernels that would find something like interesting or something that researchers often wants to find in tissues. Uh, we haven't thought of anything yet, but yeah, like increasing the number of like interpretable kernels would be would be quite nice. Mm-hmm. And so, in your experiments, uh, what what did you find? Like, what rough percent of uh, genes are just generally spatially variable versus like periodically or linearly variable? In most cases, or out of the genes that we do find, which is in at least in the two spatial transcomics data sets that we reported. Uh, a very small fraction were significantly variable. At least in some way, right? Like with the Gaussian kernel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in general, we found a very small number which were linear and a handful of genes which were periodic. That depended a bit on the data set. So one data set is a breast cancer data set. And we found actually the, the genes that we found which were periodic were kind of interesting because they sort of seem to correspond to invading cell types in the tissue, like immune cells being kind of spread out across the tissue or like peppered across the tissue. Uh, the other data set which I described before is this uh, olfactory bulb from mice. And we did find a bit more periodic, periodic genes there. And in many cases, those genes corresponded to being very highly expressed inside, like in the middle of the two hemispheres of the, of the brain. Uh, so... The period is ex- essentially finding the fact that uh, there's s- symmetry in the brain, like left-right symmetry. So that's what I'm saying before. So if you if you have in the if you're in the middle of the left hemisphere and you have a high expression, but it's also finding that the same gene will be highly expressed, uh, like 1.1 millimeters away in the right hemisphere. So it's identifying this kind of pattern uh, as periodic, which it is because it's. Um, it's not repeating very often, but it has one very, very clear repetition, which is identifies. Interesting. So those genes that are not spatially uh, variable, according to the very general Gaussian kernel, how do you think about them? Like, uh, are are these genes like an evidence that everything is so chaotic, or or everything is so like uniform and homogeneous? Yeah, so we actually, we don't distinguish between those cases. Or chaotic is, is kind of a strong word, I guess, but, uh, what we're identifying here with our test is basically genes which, uh, depend on the tissue, like in, in the global tissue structure. Of course, uh, many, uh, uh, many things do not depend on this. So like, and especially if we use the spatial transcomics as an example, uh, where each kind of coordinates represents between 10 and 100 cells, you might have some cells there which 
uh, express some kind of genes and some other cells which do not. But the fact that the cells are there uh, do not depend on the spatial coordinate per se, so it's more uh, small-scale structure in uh, in the tissue, mm-hmm. uh, which would not necessarily depend on on the tissue structure itself. There's also a lot of other gene regulation which happens by necessity in the, in the uh, tissue cells, but are not necessarily regulated by the fact that they are in a in a structure. They might be, for example, uh, cycling or something like this, and that doesn't really depend on on the neighborhood as much as other uh, genes do. Right. Um, could you talk a bit about uh, normalization on the cell size that you did? Oh, yeah, of course. So for the special transcriptomics, we kind of deal with it as we do for RNA sequencing in general. And something that you generally have to do is that you have to account for the fact that different samples have different sequencing depths. We do the same kind of normalization there when we just normalize to the total number of counts. Right. For the other data sets, we also... we were kind of surprised about this, but we did find that we had to do the same kind of normalization. And we were, I mean, luckily we could use the same normalization, which makes it pretty general. Uh, but we found that we have to do it for a different reason, which is, uh, and well, actually, so if you analyze only, we, so I said we have these two data sets, one from Seekfish and one from Murfish. Um, if you do, uh, or the data that I could get from Seekfish was just a table basically that had, okay, this is a cell which has this coordinate and this expression value for this gene. Uh, for the Murphish data, they actually provided us, uh, so Jeffrey Moffitt, who is the author, I communicated with him a lot to understand the data sets. And he explained that actually they have the, uh, you, you get the coordinate of each um, transcript and it's um, um, and like a, a membership of a cell. So you get it on a subcellular resolution. Ah, interesting. And this way you can also get... Um, uh, because the the way they have saved all the data, uh, you could also get the area for the cell. And something we noticed, so well, we saw that there was a dependence, like on the total number of probes that we saw for each cell and any given gene. So what that means is that if if you say, oh, what's the expression of BSN, and I could ask, oh, what's the uh, what's the total number of counts in the in the cell, and then you respond with, then I can predict what the expression of BSN is. That that feels like it's not very biological, uh, or like not very interesting. And it turned out if if you looked at the area, the area also predicted the expression of each gene. So, or that there was a very strong correlation between the area and each gene's expression. So, it seems that the area of the cell will. Uh, De- determine the expression of every gene. And this is actually, there's a, there's a really cool paper from Arjun Raja's lab, uh, recently where they did some experiments fusing cells. And they saw that if you increase the volume of a cell, it is going to respond by increasing the expression of all genes. Um, and, uh, so there's kind of a, an inherent relation between the size of a cell in terms of volume and how many transcripts the cell produces of a given gene. And of course, this is interesting and the sizes of cells is an interesting biological thing, but we thought to determine 
interesting gene-specific uh, spatial dependency, uh, we don't want to look at this effect alone. We do do a processing where we also look for how uh, how much the uh, size of the cell depends on uh, the spatial coordinates, and this is this uh, tends to get a pretty high p or pretty good p-value as well. So. In many cases, the sizes of cells or the total number of counts of cells is also spatially variable. Uh, but it's just one aspect. And we, and further from that, we look at how, uh, uh, how much of the spatial variance is explained after we have accounted for the fact that cells have different sizes. So you said something interesting that like you have coordinates for individual transcripts right but then you have to assign them to the cells so do you have also the uh, some kind of coordinates of the boundary of the cell or how do you do that yeah i mean so this is data that was uh that that was made public by the by the different groups or for the in this case uh uh shawai shang's group uh and uh, uh yeah i from what I've, I've been trying to look at their, at their software packages and stuff to, to try to do this kind of thing myself, to do the segmentation of the images into the cells. And it's, it seems uh, quite difficult to be honest. And I'm, I'm glad they published the data in such a way that I did not need to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there, there's this kind of image analysis where you try to identify where the edges between cells are and then you uh, kind of, yeah, make a mask around it and say, okay, within this little polygon, there's one cell and every transcript that we identified within that cell is then assigned to that cell. Right. So, so that's kind of how the counting happens in, in the single molecule fish, uh, world, the in situ hybridization world is that you, you just kind of define what a region that you call a cell and then you just count in the image how many spots you see inside the cell and that's where you get to count. Mm-hmm. So it's way much more direct than, for example, RNA sequencing. And that's kind of like, so a single molecule fish is sort of the gold standard for transcription to, to quantify the number of transcripts in cells. Got it. So now that you're uh, moving labs, what is the future fate of spatial D? Like, will you continue to maintain it or will someone in your old lab will continue to maintain it? Uh, I'm going to continue to maintain it. Um, for a while, we have some uh, follow-up things that we are planning to include in it, and uh, we're also uh, starting to work on a on an R version. And so, the the current version is it's in Python. In Python, mm-hmm. yes. Do you want to re-implement everything in R, or just provide an R interface to the Python code? Uh, I would prefer to implement everything in R. The experience I've had with these uh, different packages that allow you to bridge between them haven't been optimal so i would probably work on on implement it completely in r uh, but we would like to add the the extra functionality that we have we're working on now like the, the future work uh, before so there's um, yeah there's some ideas on how to take this further and and answer more questions using the same kind of data that's uh, ongoing work so so the goal of converting to r is it to like provide a better interface for our users or you think that it will actually benefit the software and it will continue to be like a command line program, but it will be better when written in R? Oh yeah, that's true. I, actually, I, I don't really use the command line version so much myself. I use it more interactively and then I make scripts that runs it. But 
yeah, that's true. I, I actually forgot that I made the command line version. Oh, interesting. I I sort I sort of assumed that uh, it should have a command line version. Well, so it's it's because it's so fast. It's pretty nice to just run it with your data, and then you can oh, I want to try with a different parameter, and then you run it again. Uh, so that's usually how I, I like the same way you would use something like deseq in in R. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I haven't thought about what we would do with the command line, but maybe we'll keep that. But it's not for speed or so. It's more for the community. So the the bioinformatics community is is very R focused, and I I want people to use it, and it's much easier to get people to use R packages than to to use Python packages. Mm-hmm. Cool. And hopefully, I want. So there, there's been some developments in the single cell field in general, or with, where they've made really good data structures for these things in R, and I would have to, would like to make use of those rather than my more ad hoc solution here. And so in your new job, if you don't mind sharing, will you continue this line of research or uh, will, are you switching to some new areas? We'll probably continue to some degree. Uh, it's still a few months before I move and I haven't finalized it. But yeah, I, I think I will we'll continue with somewhat similar things. Cool. Got it. Okay, we'll be wrapping up. Is there anything else you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet? No, no, I, I think it, I think it's fine. Cool. Well, Valentine, it was a great pleasure to talk to you. Oh yeah, same to you. It was, it was fun.